Hey there, everyone, and thanks for joining us on another episode of Queer Science. We are doing things differently today as we want to start out this episode with a little story from our guest, Dr. Devyani Singh, and her journey from scientist to political candidate. But don't worry, you'll hear more from R and I shortly. I'm Devyani Singh, and I'm originally from India. I grew up in the Indian Himalayas where, you know, hiking, and my father was a military officer and so didn't have a lot of stability except for our family home in the Himalayas where I spent all my vacation. And uh, it was then that this real love for environment and nature in me uh, began. It was, uh, you know, I used to go hiking and I started seeing the impacts of climate change back in the 80s and 90s on, you know, the glaciers, on wildlife, on, you know, species going extinct, uh, increased wildfires. And I wanted to do something. But being a woman in India in the early 90s, there weren't a lot of options as to what I could do. I really wanted to be a wildlife warden or, you know, um, just like have a ENGO, but those were not options available. So... I, it was really doctor, engineer, or business. And so I said, all right, I don't want to be a doctor or an engineer. I'll choose business and I can do finance and make tons of money and then open up animal shelter homes and start an NGO. So I figured that's what I could do. So I did business and I did finance and uh, moved to the US uh, to do an MBA in finance and then worked in corporate America for a few years with like Fortune 200 companies like Whirlpool Global Headquarters and Best Buy Corporate Headquarters as a senior financial analyst. And it was then uh, one day when I was working on this team and, you know, that was basically looking at closing factories um, in the U.S. and moving them to Mexico because we could exploit environmental laws uh, to make another billion probably for the company. And that's when I realized that, you know, what I'm doing and what I care about were like, you know, my passion were at odds. My name is R, co-host, co-creator, and resident artist of this podcast. And I'm Bree, your other co-host, editor, and co-creator of the show. Welcome to the last episode in this season of Queer Science. We've wrapped up recording for this year, but don't worry, we'll definitely be back. In case you can't wait or simply want to see some sillier, more personal content, check out our Patreon. Monthly patrons can see our behind-the-scenes footage, Q&As, personalized doodles, and just whatever ridiculous fun things we can think of as a thank you for supporting us. Find out more at patreon.com slash queer science. Now, let's get started. For our final episode of this season, we talked to Dr. Devyani Singh, who recently ran for office in Vancouver, Canada. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, why are we interviewing a politician? Isn't this a queer science show? Well, Dr. Singh is also an accomplished scientist, and that's only half of the reason why we wanted to talk to her. Another reason is because being apolitical is not an option. Our, I, and all other queer folks, really any marginalized community, our lives and well-beings are defined by laws and legislation. Our identities become politicized. What we can or can't do is a question during electoral debates. We have no choice but to pay attention to government actions and judicial outcomes. We must be political. Not discussing the impact of the political sphere on a show about queerness and science is simply not looking at the whole picture. It's like observing yet ignoring a huge set of influential variables and saying, we don't really care about all this obvious evidence. But we need to. We need to care more. Just like when Dr. Singh needed to abruptly change career paths. So I uh, called my sister in India and she's like, you want the truth. She's like, Ever since you were a child, all you would ever cared about is nature. 
we supported you being in business, but that's never really what you've cared about. And so I quit. <laughs> I didn't think a lot. I quit. Didn't know what I'd do next. Went on a soul searching trip for a while and ended up doing a second master's in environmental science in the U.S. And when I was doing that is when I realized like this real passion that I had for nature and the environment, I reconnected with that and really want, loved doing research. And so I started looking into PhD programs and I actually got into a very nice uh, public policy uh, in, like uh, at the Arizona State University or whichever one's in um, down in, uh, you know, the one that's in the South, not in Phoenix, I'm forgetting the place. <laughs> but anyway, but I, it was around then, I think it was back like early 2000s when Arizona came up with that law where uh, if the cops caught you without your papers, they could just put you in jail overnight. And as a brown person, I was like, I don't if I'm doing my Ph.D., I don't want to go out in the evening to a bar and then end up in jail because I didn't carry my passport with me. And I and I'd also got admission at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. And so I was like, you know what? Things were I felt it was it was like the universe telling me go to UBC. And that's how I ended up here in Vancouver, Canada in 2012, doing my Ph.D. at the Faculty of Forestry. But focusing on energy and climate policy. And so that's what I've been doing and finished my PhD last year. And now I'm working as a postdoctoral fellow actually out of Pennsylvania, Harrisburg University, working remotely in Canada. And I'm working on oil and gas emissions in North America. Uh, so that's what I'm doing. And that's, uh, yeah, I finally found my soul and I'm happy with what I'm doing. Yeah. So if, if you were working on climate and energy policy, was were you already kind of in the political like sphere with that stuff? Um, I know you're running now, but at that time, was that already like, I think just the word policy itself, I'm thinking you were already kind of involved in, in politics? Um, yeah. So as a scientist, when we do policy kind of like research, policy relevant research, we're not really directly involved in politics. We are doing... Uh, research that can impact policies and regulations, such as the work I'm doing right now on methane emissions, can it will inform uh, Canadian federal regulations and provincial regulations on methane emissions tracking. So it's nonpartisan. It's more relevant to what we do. Or when for my PhD, I was working in uh, looking at getting cleaner cooking access to households in the global south, because almost half the world still cooks on open fire every day, uh, which is uh, mind-blowing and you know or more than 55 percent of all wood extracted in the world is used for cooking so you know when you're looking at those impacts so i was looking at like climate impacts and health impacts and forest impacts of, of getting clean cooking access but it was directly relevant to policies in the global south such as in india there was this ujwala campaign which was aimed at getting clean cooking access to 80 million households in three years and so i actually uh, did some work on that, looking at its climate impacts. So that's what we mean by uh, when I do climate and energy policy is uh, looking at policies or doing research that has direct implications for policy. So uh, polit I was very obviously engaged in world politics because it impacts all of us, but I had never thought about running until a couple months ago. <laughs>
This past fall, Dr. Singh ran for office in Vancouver as part of the Greens Party of British Columbia, or BC Greens. The BC Greens are guided by what they refer to as their six core principles. That is participatory democracy, sustainability, social justice, respect for diversity, ecological wisdom, and nonviolence. When talking with Dr. Singh, we were interested in how she got into politics as a scientist. Yeah, um, as I was saying earlier, I had not thought about running for office. Uh, you know, I was doing science, I was writing op-eds, writing letters, doing policy-relevant research, you know, being the naive academic, as most scientists are, assuming that government someday and politicians will listen to us and take action. And that was not happening. It's not been happening. And in the past year, we've seen the climate impacts are getting worse. Uh, governments are, especially when it comes to climate change, are not listening, at least in British Columbia and Canada, um, unlike our neighbors south of the border, uh, they do believe in science and they, it is not, it is nationally, we recognize it's a climate emergency. It's just what differs between conservatives, liberals and our other parties is how much action they want to take towards it. Uh, so at least we're uh, ahead on that. And especially in BC, Dr. Bonnie Henry has been phenomenal. Like people world over have been talking about her actions uh, dealing with the pandemic. So we've really listened to her. We've really listened to the science. But at the same time, the government has totally ignored the science of climate change. And, you know, our liberals uh, party that was there for 17 years before the current government uh, was always people said they don't care about climate. They don't care about this and that. And then so this current government that's been that had been there for three and a half years said, oh, we are the climate conscious party. They came in and increased fossil fuel subsidy by almost 80 percent over the previous government. They came in and went ahead with all the projects they opposed while they were campaigning. And that's when I was I realized that all these parties are the same. They don't care. They care, care about power. And once they come into power, it is the same lies across party lines. And I, you know, we've seen all these young student strikes and all happening over the world. And uh, the next four years are going to be critical. They're going to be very important when it comes to climate action, because if we really want to keep our emissions down and meet Paris targets of hitting two degrees or 1.5 degrees centigrade uh, global temperature rise, we really need to put the right policies. And especially in British Columbia, the current government has been going ahead with, ahead with this one big LNG Canada fracking plant. Uh, that when it comes online in four years will be the single largest source of Canadian emissions. And and then the government goes, we have a clean BC plan. We're going to be net zero by 2050. When everything points, if this plant comes online, even if every other sector goes to zero, we'll exceed our climate emissions targets by 160%. So it doesn't fit in that, which means they're again just lying, going ahead with the fossil fuel. And I just couldn't sit back. As a scientist, I was appalled. And I figured, you know, they do say, be the change you want to be, see in the world. And I decided to take the leap. And I'm running with the Green Party because this is the only party that truly has cared and consistently has cared about the climate. They are the only, uh, we had only three MLAs now too in the government when this was happening, who 14 times, they were the only ones in government voting against fossil fuel subsidy, voting against all of these. But there were three uh, compared to other 80 MLAs in the government. And so they're the only ones who have consistently shown that they are an evidence-based party. They are, they care about climate and they care about people. They care about just transitions. And we just had a new uh, a, a leader elected a month ago, Sonia Forstnow. She's wonderful. I am in awe of her. All of us who are running are in awe of her. And uh, we're just looking forward to her leadership in coming years because she will be wonderful. She was a school teacher. She's done so much for the indigenous people. Uh, in British Columbia, 
She's truly passionate about, like, as we say, people, planet, and prosperity. And we, the Green Party has a plan for just transitions. And when I said as a scientist, I wanted to run with them, they were very happy. They said, we're an evidence-based party and we would love to have you because we need young people. We need the voices of marginalized. We need the voice of science in government. And uh, which is why I'm running with them. And, you know, when it comes to their platform, you know, I was, I spoke to Sonia and she said, you are, you know, unlike the NDP and the liberals that vote party lines, basically we call it their votes are where no matter what they stand for, once they get elected, they vote the way NDP wants them to. I told Sonia, I said, look, I'm running because I really care about this. And that's what she said. She's like, you'll vote for what science and evidence tells you, you know, and you're not, it's not, you're not forced to vote party lines, which is what I want. Although it's funny because I do believe in, if you know, 90% or more of their platform, if not more. So I would be voting party lines. But I, I know that they they care about your integrity and your and you serving the people. It's not about, once you get elected, it's not about your political ideology in government. It's about how best can you serve the people of British Columbia and your constituency. So yes, when it comes to the affordability crisis, when it comes to the opioid crisis that we're facing in BC, when it comes to the climate crisis, when it comes to the pandemic, um, you know, early childhood education, public health, all of this. Um, their platform is the most comprehensive and the one that really uh, doesn't look at one sector, but it looks at people, planet, and prosperity as one and in their interconnectedness. And so, yes, I, I that's why I'm running with them. I truly do believe in the BC Greens. <laughs> I, I know, too, another question I had earlier, um, when you're talking about like bringing in the scientists and the experts, our like sixth question, I believe, is um, ask a little bit about how you perceive social and environmental justice. So, like, how do you see science, social justice, and environmental justice interacting? Because I know that a lot of times, like the environmental justice movement and environmental racism here in the United States, there has been oftentimes kind of like hesitation with communities who are being impacted by environmental racism and working with scientists but like a lot of work has been done in that kind of collaboration aspect between scientists and communities working together to change policy uh so i was wondering like a little bit more of your take there on that stuff yes and like, as you said you know, social environmental and racial justice is actually you can't have one without the other you know when you're looking at the environmental impacts we know how it disproportionately impacts uh developing countries and, you know, it also impacts in developed countries, the marginalized and the poor more. You know, most of these plants, polluting plants and all are put in neighborhoods of color. You know, the poor people are the ones who don't have the means to protect themselves from uh, climate impacts. You know, let's say in India, the India is feeling more impacts of climate change than the U.S. or Canada. Within India, too, the rich can have air conditioners when the temperatures are hitting like 50 degrees centigrade or like 120 degree Fahrenheit but the poor can't. So they're dying of the heat waves. They are dying of the flooding, right? And so you really, when we're talking about racial justice and, and you know, social justice and environmental justice, they're really the same because to get rid of one and we need to fix everything, right? If we, we fix the climate change issue and it can truly only be fixed when we look at the social and the racial part of it. Right? Because, again, we're not leaving anyone behind. They are the ones who get impacted most by it, the people of color, the indigenous people. It's their lands that we are pushing these pipelines through without their consent, you know, without their free, prior and informed consent. And 
you know, all the uh, in BC, we've been having a lot of issues with the police, like, you know, raiding Wet'suwet'en people territory because they're pushing this pipeline and they don't want it, you know, for the LNG plant. And then there we have this big dam that's being built. And again, the First Nations don't want it. And so we're not in, we're not bringing them to the table. In fact, BC just passed the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People last year, but it's done nothing about it. So these are all like, again, uh, political points that BC cares about here in Drip. Canada passed a climate emergency and the next day Trudeau bought the pipeline, <laughs> you know? So um, this is the, the hypocrisy of politics, right? And then it's impacting. So we really need to work on the social, racial and environmental justice piece at the same time, if we really want to leave a better future and a livable planet for future generations. When running for office, Dr. Singh aims to enable a just transition to a low-carbon future. And just transitions are something that Dr. Singh has also talked about on Twitter. But what exactly does a just transition mean? You must have heard and people talk a lot about energy transitions. And, you know, right now in the U.S. with the, uh, you know, elections coming up, people are talking about we need to transition. We need to transition off your fossil fuels. So the word Transition relates to going away from fossil fuels to cleaner sources of energies, to low carbon energy sources. The just part is, is we want to do, we want to make sure it's equitable for everyone and no one gets left behind, especially, let's say, the workers in the fossil fuel industry. You know, we've seen the collapse of the forestry industry that we did not see coming. And so many people were out of jobs. We had ghost towns. You know, we've seen that in coal areas. So we want to make sure that we know this transition is coming, that we can cater to all these needs. So the just part relates to how do we help these people working in fossil fuel, in oil and gas, in coal, um, transition to good, healthy paying jobs in a new industry and a new sector. And there are many ways to do that. You know, we've we've had just transitions from coal in Alberta, actually, in Canada, we've had um, in Spain. And there are lessons to be learned where, you know, some of the things this comes down to is setting up, let's say, um, a fund where people can tap into when if they want to go back to learn new skills, new trades and new skills. So it's retraining of the workforce because you might need new skills in, let's say, in the solar and wind industry compared to what you had in the oil and gas. At the same time, there might be some people who aren't able to learn new skills or transition. Uh, they might be an older population. Uh, in that case, we want to set up things like early retirement funds. And so it's like they still have ways to maintain their livelihoods. The other thing is oil and gas is a very high paying industry. It's over $100,000 for these people. And it's likely that in the first few years of these clean energy transitions, they won't have that kind of money and salaries that oil and gas industry does. So we wanted to set up things like wage insurance, such that there's the gap gets covered. Because a lot of people won't want to willingly leave a $120,000 job, let's say, and move to an $80,000 job. So you want to like tell them, okay, this is better for you. This is a permanent long-term job, but you get covered for that 40,000 difference if you do it voluntarily. And so that's what we mean by just transition is like setting up these systems and these place policies in place to make sure that nobody gets left behind as we plan this transition. Because, um, you know, you hear a lot of like uh, the right wing around the world saying, oh, you know, you're going to leave these people and it's about jobs. It's because 
they like to ignore the just part of the transition. It's trying to create fear, saying, look at these uh, progressive people, the progressive policies and the progressive parties don't care about you. They want to transition away. Whereas everyone in the progressive side will always talk about just transitions because we know what we need to do to help them transition. We don't want to leave people behind. They are our friends, our family, you know, our relatives. We care about them. And so that's what we mean by a just transition is making sure it's equitable to everybody and we don't leave anybody behind and nobody really gets to feel the negative impacts of a transition that we know is coming and we need to do for the sake of this planet. So with the transition stuff, um, like particularly in like the Appalachian Mountains, like where we are, there's um, there's like a, a culture around being a miner and there's like a pride in that kind of work. Uh, have you ever like come across that same kind of cultural divide of like, I'm proud to be a miner, like even though it's giving me black lung and I'm going to die from it, like, like there's a there's a cultural identity with that. And you've, have you had any experience where you kind of like have to convince someone that like that doesn't have to be their identity? Like, have you ever encountered that cultural clash? I personally haven't, but I have heard of this. And I think um, one of the ways like, I feel sometimes that that identity has also been pushed a lot in our narratives saying it's your job. You should be proud of this. You're a coal miner and you shouldn't. But, you know, if you can start telling them that you can have the same pride in being a, I don't know, solar installer or a wind uh, industry person, you know, it's about uh, I think the pride comes from a sense of belonging to a place, to an industry. And that is something that can be created. It's a culture that can be created. And as long as and and if we can promote the negative impacts, like you mentioned, black lung and, uh, you know, also that these are temporary jobs. A lot of oil and gas jobs uh, are temporary because it's a boom and bust cycle where when pipelines are getting built, there are thousands of jobs. And two years later, those jobs are gone, creating very few permanent jobs. So when you start telling them that, great, you're proud of this, but, you know, we can give you good paying, healthier, permanent jobs in these new industries and new sectors uh, I think there is a, a way, and I, I mean, of course, we probably, I'm sure there are people out there doing research on this narrative. Um, that's not been my field of expertise, but, you know, it, it is interesting because it's kind of like changing people's behaviors and cultural values, which is kind of what I, I faced when I was doing uh, energy transitions work in the households, uh, trying to get clean cooking access. As you mentioned, it makes sense. You know, uh, about 3 million people die every year because of cooking on open fire. You know, it's the PM 2.5. It, it's uh, bad for the children who are sitting there. It's unsafe. It's a lot of labor burden. But you, so you would think if you're giving them a better cook stove, they would be very happy to transition. But it's simple things like, you know, well, if, uh, but the food doesn't taste as good if you cook it on, uh, you know, gas or electricity as compared to wood. You know, it's like barbecue, the smoky flavor, or this is the way it's been done, you know, or my time to go collect wood is my social time. So it's these, I think these cultural and behavioral um, issues that we really will have to work on along with uh, just providing those monetary and system, you know, institutional support for a transition. I think uh, we'll need to do, uh, there'll be a lot of uh, narrative that will have to be focused around uh, creating this new identity if they let go of and a sense of belonging. I think that's a very good point you brought up and it is something um, that needs to be looked into as we go into the future, because an energy transition is coming, whether we like it or not. Gotcha. 
because like I've I don't have family that were coal miners, but I've been to areas in which coal mining is like the industry or like um, mm-hmm. I did a study abroad, a.k.a. just go a couple like <laughs> north and get to canada and actually we stayed at ubc so um yeah it's it's a great place i love it i wish i could go there if i had enough money um but like that is a big issue affordability yeah um but like we saw the same thing with some of the forestry industry and how like it's a it used to be like this foundational thing on the west coast and then it's like the demand sort of changed and jobs changed and like there is that whole like I don't know it's a sense of loss but like not only just a sense of loss in terms of like a natural resources being depleted it's also loss in the sense of like this is how I was raised this is what my grandfather did this is what my father did now this Mm -hmm. is what I'm supposed to do that's not there anymore so like I've come across um several situations in which there is that like cultural dynamic of like this is what we're supposed to do this is how it's been done you said mm-hmm. that kind of like holding one to, to tradition and then it's just sort of like it's really hard sometimes to kind of like change that that narrative like you're saying We've talked to Dr. Singh about her career as a scientist and how she got into politics, but what about her queer identity? How does that tie into her as a scientist and a politician? So you've mentioned um, a lot about how growing up in India kind of influenced your love of nature, and you mentioned a bit about being a brown person in Arizona, um, but is there <laughs> is there any way that your queer identity has sort of shaped your career and your policies and your view on things? Well, in a way, the queer identity, did probably also helped me want to quit um, corporate America because when I was there, uh, one of the places I was working for, uh, my supervisor basically did not like the fact I was queer and told me either I quit or he will fire me and then I will be sent back because my H-1B would uh, expire or I could put in my resignation and they'd give me three months salary to find another job, right? And I wasn't protected for sexual orientation in that state at that point. And so, you know, things like this, hiding who I was uh, all through my corporate life, probably also pushed me towards the academic field where I'm not saying academia doesn't have, uh, you know, uh, homophobia or racism or sexism, but um, it's a lot less. And especially in at UBC where I've been, you know, it's like one of the most progressive places. First you're in like Canada, then you're in Vancouver, and then you're at UBC. So that like I've been very lucky that way is at UBC to be out and be me like this election I'm running as an openly queer candidate and in the U.S. all I can think of is hiding my identity uh, you know because I still work like I was in Pennsylvania until before COVID hit uh, for a few months and I was in Harrisburg which is a fossil fuel run kind of climate you come across climate deniers and you know all sorts of interesting people in those parts Uh, but yeah so I think the queer identity has uh, in a way shaped me. But as I mentioned that the queer, the, the you know, people of color and women and indigenous people, you know, immigrants, these are the ones who faced most impacts of climate change because we are the marginalized. We aren't usually, they don't have access to the resources to uh, adapt or protect ourselves from climate catastrophes. And so definitely all those um, 
parts of me has made me who I am. And the immigrant is very important. As I mentioned, India has been feeling the impacts of climate change for a long time. Bangladesh is flooding. Uh, growing up there, my whole family's there. I'm the only one who lives uh, you know, here. My mo- mother, my mom, dad, my aunt, my sister, they all live in India. And these impacts are real and they are f- facing them. And so it totally makes me fight more for, co- the, for climate justice because action taken anywhere in the world impacts everywhere in the world when it comes to climate change. So, so do you see a lot more scientists, um, like as kind of like a wave of scientists getting into politics? Like, do you think this is the start of science really entering politics and being the foundation of it? Like, do you see this as a movement? I hope so, uh, because actually in the BC Greens in this election, uh, there's another recent PhD from UBC. She's an ecologist. Uh, she's running as well. So we are the two scientists running with the BC Green Party from Vancouver itself. Uh, so you know, it shows when, which party the scientists are choosing, which party the mental health experts are choosing, which party the lawyers who are working on, you know, opioid and human rights are choosing. Uh, it's it's an amazing slate of candidates we have, and each one is an expert in, in our own field. So I really do think it is, uh, it is time for experts to get into politics. Traditionally, the way politics has been done has failed society uh, all around the world. The marginalized are falling through the cracks. The poor, uh, poor are getting poorer. You know, diversity is you know, no one cares about diversity and the voices of the marginalized. So what I found interesting in the last two weeks of campaigning is, you know, as a scientist, I'm used to speaking and asking questions and getting good answers and a discussion. And uh, I'm in debates with other candidates and you ask a question and they just, oh, you're oversimplifying things. That's not how it works. But, um, you know, we're in a debate and there's a public, you know, this is some things I've learned from science communication. You simplify things to help people understand. You want to talk complexities? Please bring it on. That's my research. But I feel like they just like say something totally different to push you off or to undermine you without actually answering. So I really feel we need more scientists, more experts, so we can actually have truth. We can have discussions about based on facts, based on evidence, right? I mean, what's the point of so much science out there and all the scientists if no one's going to listen to us? So I really think it's uh, it's changing. In fact, we have this one, uh, we have a young climate activist, two actually young climate activists running for the BC Greens this year. One of them just turned 18 a couple of weeks ago, making her eligible to run, Kate O'Connor, and she's running. And we have Harrison Johnston, he's just turned 21, and he created the largest climate strike over in Vancouver last year. So, you know, they're getting the voices of the young because the youngest MLA in BC is right now 35 years old. Do they really know what the young people graduating high school in British Columbia are going through right now when they can't they don't, they don't understand how they're going to pay for higher education or afford to have a house because we have such a housing crisis in this place so you know I feel we need young people we need activists we need scientists we need experts we need these voices in government we don't need career politicians that old traditional politics it's time for it to leave it's time for a new system of politics and governance which is truly for the people and by the people. Yeah, again, I'm still sitting here. I'm like, wow, this is like, this is the point that should be made all the time. And I'm just like, finally, like, yeah, I don't, I'm just sort of like agreeing with everything you're saying. And I'm just like, yes, yes, exactly. So it's, it's a big relief to sort of have that voice, both of a scientist and of a marginalized identity running in politics like like you mentioned that maybe like if you don't win there's still that that action happened and that is like a step forward and like just making that noise and making your voice heard like i'm just over here like why can't this happen here 
Like, <laughs> I'm super inspired right now. I'm like, yeah, like, this is yeah. very inspirational conversation. Oh, run for office. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> let me let me get through school first and yeah. then and then we'll see what happens yeah i mean we have a we have kate o'connor who just turned 18 running we have yeah. people in college True. right now running True. so you know yeah. it's, it's your future your future is at stake here it's time mm-hmm. to take control of it don't let the grown-ups yeah. mess it up even more than we have <laughs> yeah that's true that is very true are sitting over there like hmm yeah i'm just like should i yeah like, i i realized that like i was so like you know nobody wants to get their hands dirty with politics but then you know you have your integrity you don't have to be the person who gets the hands dirty you can get in there and try to start cleaning it up from the inside and in the last mm-hmm. three weeks i've got a whole different perspective about how i can actually make an impact and I'm really empowered by that. And just the amount of support I have seen from people, they don't know who I am. I'm a new candidate. And and there's people like emailing me saying, you know, thank you for giving us hope. And, you know, you're just what we need. Uh, we need more science. We need, need facts. Or I'm on the street and somebody the other day said, oh, are you Devyani? I just voted for you. Thank you so much for running and giving us hope. Or, you know, people saying that, you know, your your science, you understand this. We need you. You're just the support. And then people's donations and the volunteers. And I've just been overwhelmed with all this support and love and, and the faith that people have put in me. And that's given me this the, the energy. And I feel more empowered that I can actually truly make a difference for all those people because I thought I was a nobody. And suddenly here I am giving all these people hope for a change. concludes everything for this episode and for our very first season. For more information regarding what we discussed in this episode, be sure to check out our show notes. A transcript of this episode can be found on our website at queerscience.show. If you liked this episode, you can tell us why by tweeting at us at Queer Science. You can also find us on Facebook as Queer Science or follow us on Instagram at queer underscore sci. We're even on TikTok too, and you can find us at Queer Science. The Queer Science team believes that educational content should be accessible to all, and we are a small team of 20-somethings working to bring this podcast to our audience for free. If you like our work, consider giving the co-hosts a tip by supporting us at patreon.com slash queerscience. You can also donate to our GoFundMe, which allows for us to afford microphones, recording software, and website upkeep. We also have merch, too, featuring the Queer Science logo and more original designs by our co-host, R. Want to support us? You can find out more by checking out our website, queerscience.show. Thanks for listening.